0: On this week's edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Is the current lead voice Sports center anchor on radio And former broadcaster for the Albany Firebirds Yes, the dearly departed Albany Firebirds Of the Arena Football League I am very happy to be joined On this edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast By Mark Kestischer If you like what you hear Please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcast directory of your choosing. If you have suggestions for people you'd like to have on this podcast, please shoot me an email at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Twitter, you can find me at king underscore tsb. Facebook, find me, send me a message, and we'll see what we can work out. But sit back and enjoy this week's edition and episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, featuring... Mark Kestisher. I'm joined on my podcast today by the lead voice of the NBA, who just came off of the bubble after being in the bubble which felt like a lifetime, with PJ Colasimo Doris Burke and the entire production team, Radio Side. I'm speaking of Mark Kestisher, who joins me, Mark. First off, thanks for the time. And number two, when did you know broadcasting was either for you or was broadcasting even on your radar?
1: Luther, good morning. Thanks for asking me on. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was probably <laughs> in high school, uh, you know, it even predates that. I'd say it was middle school. I used to go to bed, you know, 10 o'clock at night, and I lived... Um, in a raised ranch and I had the downstairs bedroom. Everybody was upstairs. I was the only one downstairs. So nobody was really paying attention to me when I would turn on my radio at night and I would listen to the end of a ball game. And then invariably, you know, a a show like the Larry King show, this is late seventies, early eighties would come on. (laughs) And then during a commercial break, I would kind of scan the dial and it became, you know, so interesting to me that Growing up in Albany, New York, I could hear a station in Minneapolis or in St. Louis or in Cleveland. That fascinated me. And so I just loved the world of radio. But then as I got into my high school years and it was time to figure out what to do, I didn't really consider it um, you know, an actual job or one that I could attain. So what was I good at? I was good at math and science. And I decided I would be a chemical engineer, and that's what I went to college for. And within two years of chemical engineering studies, in which I was a very poor student, I was spending too much time at all the games at the Carrier Dome at Syracuse University, and had many friends in the Newhouse School of Broadcasting. That I decided I was going to give it. A, I was going to give it a shot, as, as incomprehensible as it was. At a very competitive school, uh, I got a great internship, and my career took off from there.
0: Who was the voice of Syracuse at that time? Was it Dave Pash or was Pash in the 90s after you had left?
1: Cash was in the 90s after I had left. Doug Logan was the voice of Syracuse. And what a voice. Holy mackerel. Nice guy. And I just, I just wanted that job. I wanted to be that guy. And when I was first in broadcasting, I remember calling him or writing him. Again, remember, I'm a dinosaur, so this is pre-internet, <laughs> early 90s. And I don't know how I got a hold of him, but he came on my radio show. He, John Sterling, who was the voice of, is the voice of the Yankees, but had just gotten the job. Uh, to have those two guys on the other end of a phone answer and pick up and say yes, they'd come on my show was like the greatest thing ever.
0: And I believe if my math is correct, Sterling was doing the Hawks on TV and Braves on TV. So I don't think he I don't think he was on radio yet, I don't think, unless he was he doing unless I, he was doing a talk show on WMC.
1: He, uh, I think this was post-Hawks, so this would have been early 90s. He got to the Yankees, and I want to say... 89, I think. 89, I think it was 89. Right? So he was maybe three years on the job with the Yankees when uh, he came on my show.
0: So what was your show? Because was that one of your first gigs out of college, or did the talk show aspect come later?
1: It was... Uh, I did... My first job was the Albany Patroons, minor league basketball, CBA. I did arena football, the Albany Firebirds. I did everything. Oh, I love the Albany Firebirds. Yeah, whatever whatever sport there was, minor (laughs) league in Albany, New York, I did. And then about three years in, um, those teams had left and I was just trying to find jobs. And uh, one of them was at this radio station called WCDA. It was a small FM. And I befriended the owner, and I, you know, did some side work for him. And then part of the deal was, I don't think he could pay me. I don't think I made me money. But he gave me three hours a night airtime from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. to do a sports talk show. And I did that for maybe a year or two before I went to the all-news station and did sports at WPTR. But in that small time frame, that's when I had my quote-unquote show.
0: Were you doing the opening firebirds when they made the arenable, or was or were they doing the or did the firebirds make the arena bowl after you had left calling the action for them
1: they made the arena bowl, i want to say two or three years after i went to cleveland they went i want to say in 99 i did them from 90 to 96 and they were very close they were an arena bowl caliber team but couldn't get past i think it was jay gruden's tampa bay lightning uh tam- no, yeah the tampa storm yeah. the hockey team I the storm that. yeah the storm thank you yes you're welcome
0: I mean, I, I remember when the Arena Bowl, when the Arena Football League was, like, everywhere, from Iowa to even here. Oh, the yeah. Cats. And we, we would play you guys, and I'm like,
1: wow. Where are you oh, located, Luther? I'm in Nashville. In Nashville, yes. I don't think I ever got to Nashville, uh, but I remember doing a game at the barn in Iowa when Kurt Warner was the quarterback.
0: And I believe Jim Zabel
1: was the playboy at WHO at that time with the, with the uh, Barnstormers, if my math is right. I think you are correct. I remember Danny White being the coach of uh, the Phoenix Rattlers.
0: Arizona, yeah, when they had Arizona. Seth Bonner.
1: That's right. Cedric Bonner was the head, co- uh, was the quarterback. Mm. Yeah, those are great memories. We had uh, touchdown Eddie Brown, Antonio's dad. Oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> Scored about eight touchdowns a game. It was fabulous.
0: I'm trying to remember who was the quarterback for that squad because I know Mark Greeb was the quarterback for the San Jose Sabercats for a
1: long time. Yeah, it it was uh, we had a bunch of quarterbacks was uh, Mike Perez, who was the singing quarterback. I think he was the first quarterback in there. (laughs) Um, uh, My my memory is not serving me on the quarterbacks of the Firebirds, (laughs) but I remember Mike very well because I I, I went out. I just wanted to hang out with him as he was doing his uh, his lounge act. And I remember he once said he goes, do you know the Beatles? And I'm like, of course I know the Beatles. And he- <laughs> Who doesn't know the Beatles? And then he gave me a song in their catalog and he's like, all right, I'm going to do the low part. You're going to do the high part. And I'm like, dude, I don't sing. But I got up there <laughs> and I sang with him and we had a great time. Oh my. Yes.
0: Mark Kester, you're the karaoke guy. <laughs>
1: that's right. Those are my <laughs> early karaoke years.
0: Okay. And let's How long did you do Sports Center? Because that's what I remember when you, when you were there doing Sports Center. The legendary UConn play play is no longer doing UConn, and I miss this guy Jody Ambrosio. Sure. Did you guys switch off on Sports Center? Or we were, what, were up- what was it Sports Center on radio when you were just doing the updates, like back then when you came into the on the end the ESPN family?
1: Yeah, I came in in late '98, and there were they were doing three updates an hour: top twenty and forty. Yeah, past. and I remember the top when I first got there was three segments you know it was a lot of time we had a couple commercial breaks um joe d'ambrosio was there dan the duke davis was there oh yes dash hour was there
0: mm-hmm. jay
1: reynolds is still there doing overnights yep uh, bob cosy obviously was there for a long time doing the mornings
0: i think you still do to play on tv from time to time i think
1: Yes, every once in a while there'd be a show that was simulcast, and uh, it would be on television. And I was a part of that crew from late '98, and then I was doing it less and less. You know, once we hit 2010, and apologize for my phone there. Um, um, continue. But, but I, um, but I, I think I phased out of Sports Centers around 2016.
0: But while you were doing Sports Centers, the NBA on ESPN Radio, when did that launch?
1: Hang on just a sec. I'll wait till this uh, phone. (laughs) Okay. All right. I think someone's leaving a message. Yep. And they have hung up. I apologize. All right. So what was your question again, Luther?
0: When you were doing the sports centers, when did you start transitioning to being... Studio slash courtside, pregame, halftime, postgame host with the legendary one who's still working as the voice of the Las Vegas Raiders, Brent Musburger, and the two legends that have since passed on, and the late Jim Durham, who was the voice of the Bulls, and the late Doctor Jack Ramsey. When do you start working with those three individuals?
1: With the I NBA? I got a I got my break in studio. I want to say in my second year, so it was probably. Uh, It was either late 99, September 99, or September 2000. I can't remember. But back then, a lot of the ESPN TV talent would do the um, Sunday Night Baseball studio. And I think uh, it might have been Rich Eisen or Bob Stevens couldn't make it in on a Sunday night. And I was doing updates. It was Yankees-Red Sox late September. I remember Pedro Martinez must have struck out 17 guys that night. And they asked if I could stay and host the baseball game which I of course was very much interested in doing so that was the first time they heard me do that they invited me back to do some NBA games and I remember Brent was uh, and JD were, were the main uh, play-by-play guys Brent specifically in the postseason conference finals and finals yep and um, so that would be about 2000 2001 and then by 2004 uh, they invited me actually it was 2003. Jim Durham, um, his doctor needed him to stay back in Texas, and he couldn't come to New Jersey for Game 6 of the Nets-Lakers NBA Finals, so they asked me if I could fill in, and I went down to the Meadowlands, and that started my career as the on-site NBA studio host in 2004, and so from there, I was pretty much indoctrinated into every sport we had, um, and then, you know, I started getting play by play opportunities, you know, around 2005, 2006. Very few, but every once in a while. And so I, I kind of was the sports center guy, the studio host guy, an occasional play by play guy, uh, probably by 2006, 2007.
0: When you <clears throat> were working with a Jim Durham, a Dr. Jack, a Brent Musburger, and others, Whatever sport they need. Oh yeah, and I forgot John Miller, who is still the voice of the San Francisco Giants on radio and TV from time to time, but most of the radio now. What things did you pick up from them that you still use to this day? And when you started listening to radio, who besides the voice of Syracuse, who are your broadcasting mentors that you still lean on their advice to this day, even though? you've been in this for a while.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I probably have borrowed, I'll say borrowed instead of stolen. I've probably borrowed more stuff from Jim Durham than anybody else on our network, and that was twofold. One, I was working with him, you know, extensively from 2003 or, or 2000 really, on uh, until he passed. Mm. And I also, that was one of those voices when I was scanning the dial <clears in the> at <throat> time in the winter time. As a young kid.
0: Bulls basketball.
1: I would hear Bulls basketball, yeah, out of Chicago all the time. That was a flamethrower that they were on. I think it was 670, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I forgot, but
0: I know, I know. I think the Bulls, I think they were one of the few that were doing simulcast, maybe, or they rotated, you know, Jim Durham from radio to TV. I, for, yeah. I don't remember off the top of my head.
1: I, but I, whatever he was doing, I remember. I just, I loved the, his descriptions. There was a guy in New York, um, Jim Carvallis, who was probably a guy I was listening to in the early eighties. I think, uh, I don't think Marv was doing Nick's radio anymore at that point.
0: I think he was doing exclusive TV.
1: Yes. So I was hearing Jim and, you know, when I listened to my play by play, you know, some of it is, you know, organic that I just had to figure out on my own in the CBA and college basketball, lower levels. I was doing division three, division two. Um, but there are times where I'll say something and I'll be like, that's Jim Durham or that's Jim Carvallis. Uh, I don't think I stole anything from Marv, even though he was the first guy I probably listened to. And, you know, unlike um, some of the young professionals of today or even college kids or even high school kids who have reached out to me and I've emailed with or I've, you know, LinkedIn or whatever format that we discuss things, Twitter, um, I didn't reach out as much. It didn't. It didn't feel attainable back, you know, before social media in the early '80s to, sure. be able to dial up a guy like that and sure. ask questions. So, so much of it has been organic on my own, and then just people I've listened to over the years. Um, but I do, you know, I, I kind of. There are parts of me that wished I could have had those kind of relationships. I, I've kind of gotten them late in life, and a perfect example is in the bubble. You know Kevin Calabro. Kevin Calabro obviously was very important to me. I didn't see him in the bubble, but uh, Kevin Harlan, who was a guy who was just his career was just taking off when I was getting out of college. We, you know, we met a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I I did stats for him in a minor league game that you know he would never remember. But you know, those were the kind of guys that I wished I could have leaned on in my twenties. That now I have relationships with, and we do discuss those kind of things. And so I'm still learning things later in life uh, that I wished I could have learned in my 20s. What was
0: being in the bubble like, especially when you weren't sure if there was actually going to be a resumption of a season, but how did you keep yourself mentally sharp even though you weren't sure or any of us were sure in this new COVID 2020 thing on if there was going to be sports period but for you with the nba how did you keep yourself mentally sharp even though there were a lot of games that had to be played a lot of things that had to be sorted out before the playoffs got underway and those teams that were fighting for spots i don't know how many games you guys actually did like pre-playoffs
1: we didn't do any oh, oh i'm sorry the seeding games we yeah did a bunch. yeah we did it we did a whole bunch of those to me, that first game I did was we had there were two games on the first day, July thirtieth. Yeah, the game which was Lakers Clippers. I want to say Utah, and I can't remember who opened up Toronto maybe, and um, it, I was a little nervous because there really wasn't a way to truly keep sharp. You know, you could turn on a game from March and go through it in your head, practicing in your hotel room. But it's not the same as turning on the, you know, putting on the headset. And just doing it. And doing it. And we also were restricted. You know, we were not only behind plexiglass, but we were the row behind the plexiglass that had they built these booths. Best way I could describe it is <clears throat> you have plexiglass in front of you, and then every six feet there was another piece of glass that was a 90-degree perpendicular closing off a booth between you and the person next to you. So When I was looking through those booths, we would sometimes get two panes of glass, you know, and distorted views. So it took a while to figure out how am I going to be able to call this game with all of this stuff in front of me at weird angles. So there was not calling a game in four and a half months. There was, you know, being 70 feet off the floor with crazy angle plexiglass. And I don't think you could really um, stay sharp. So the only way I stayed sharp in a different way was we did um projects where we did our uh, classic games that aired over i don't know a couple of months every saturday or sunday night baseball and basketball and yeah, i was
0: i caught i caught a few of those
1: yeah i was tasked with doing um the 90s bulls which was in concert you know with uh, the michael jordan documentary yep. and, and and for me that was fun because as i was researching that i'd go down these you know electronic rabbit holes of other NBA playoffs and finals, and so for me, it was a chance to, you know, sharpen up on the history of the league or things that I'd been a part of and forgotten about, um, you know, in advance of returning, but there really was no, for me, real way to stay sharp until we did it, and then we ended, I ended up doing 33 games, Sean Kelly did a handful, so we might have done 45, 50 games in the bubble, and by the end, um, you know, we had it down pretty good.
0: Yeah, you had you, and it was basically you and PJ for, I think PJ was the only
1: analyst. I think they did almost every one. I, um, I had John Barry for a little <clears> bit, <throat> and then PJ came in in August and stayed the rest of the way. And then Doris Burke joined us for the conference finals and finals, which was a whole other story doing a three-person booth.
0: That's what um, I was going to ask you the next yeah. question, like, because I'm like – What's the cause I know a two-person booth is a lot easier. A two-person, you know, radio broadcast with a you and PJ or a Sean and PJ doing that. But then when you add a Doris Burke who's done, let's be honest, her career has taken off very well as a cutler analyst and a sideline reporter as well. But adding her to the mix, it felt like it added a little something extra to it. But how was it when you, PJ and Doris as the basic three person crew handling on the radio side, the conference finals and the NBA finals, how are you guys able to, you know, make it work, even though it's probably, you know, a task and a half to make sure that everybody is actually satisfied with their place in the broadcast.
1: Yeah, I was I was Since a you're
0: basically nervous. the traffic cop.
1: Yeah, I was a little nervous because I, I did it once on television. Ironically, Doris was a part of a three person Booth that I worked on a television game. The radio's different, and I had been um, a host when Mike Tarico had a three-person with Dr. Jack and Hubie Brown. Mm-hmm. So I remember the machinations of how they did it, and
0: and what, that one felt like that one just flowed with those. And,
1: and you know what happened? Great was early on. They said, Jack, when Miami scores, you get first crack, Hubie when um, Oklahoma City scores, you get first crack, and then we'll figure it out. So I had remembered that, as did our producer, Beth Faber, who, you know, has been producing at ESPN Radio since the mid-90s. And so that's how we started. And I have to say, (laughs) between Doris and PJ and myself, there was a lot of nonverbal eye contact, uh, hand contact, you know, people, we were six feet apart, so it was hard to you know, reach out and touch somebody, but there was a lot of hand motioning. Yeah. And it just worked. I don't know how to say it, Luther, except to say, and I I give total plaudits to both Doris and PJ. Definitely. They had the hard part. They had had to be concise. You know, my part, I could figure out where to jump in and jump out. But they – we were so good in game one that it was kind of dumb luck. And, you know, by game two and game three – we started getting a little long, and it, it, it took a toll on the play-by-play. We were late in the clock, so we, we we sat around and discussed it before game four, and we said, all right, we need to tighten things up. And again, all credit to Doris, all credit to PJ. We found a, a second rhythm, and that's the one we kept the rest of the way. And uh, having Doris was, it was outstanding to bring her perspective, uh, PJ with his coach's perspective. She leaned on that a lot and uh, i th- i thought it went very well all the reviews seem to be good
0: when you're dealing with a former coach and a former point guard who's played the game, coached the game and you being a play-by-play guy that has seen the game, called the game, been around it when you're dealing with those, you know, aspects and try to make sure that everything just comes together especially when you have a good producer like Matt favor and then 10 Ann and and everybody else that on the production side of things, where you could still get the sound. How either easy was it or tough? Was it as a problem I got to make sure that the, you know, that the mix was good in your ear holes to make sure that it wasn't killing your ears. So you could actually stand hearing the sound.
1: Yeah. It Um, we have, two outstanding engineers in uh, Al Rosenberg and Bob White and Al was with us for the seeding games Bob was with us for, for the entire playoff run right till the end and those two guys have the best mixes that I've ever I've ever worked with and and you know technology now has allowed us to individually mix each person So maybe I want a little more sneakers and a little more uh, net return from Bristol. And maybe PJ wants less of everything. Or maybe Doris wants less of me, but more of PJ. And they could figure all that out. And um, I never had a problem with the mix. Maybe the first day Bob came because we had a switch from Al to Bob. And we made that adjustment quickly. Um, But it it was smooth. Uh, you put on those headsets, Luther, I swear you'd think there were 15,000 people. You took the headsets off, and you couldn't believe that this was game five of the NBA finals. Like, sure here, there's no sound, we're five minutes from tip. What the heck are we doing? And then you put on those headphones, like, oh. and it was fabulous.
0: So, for you, like, how often have you gone solo since you, besides the minor league like, basketball and you know other sports for you actually got to the NBA like how many times out of you know would you say you've actually had to do a game solo
1: on your own since i got to ESPN be zero um all my solo work was you know when i first started out in albany and i got a little bit of action in ohio but i think i had an analyst doing college football marietta college uh down in southeastern Ohio um, I don't think I've done a solo game since that's not how they roll at ESPN radio everything <laughs> has, a, has an analyst to the play-by-play the only time I'd be solo is if my analyst got sick or in today's uh, COVID world if their line dropped which I haven't had a chance to do um, a remote game yet but they're coming for me I'm sure I'll be doing a bunch of remote football games so if uh, if my analyst line drops, that'll be my first solo game in a long time.
0: So how do you, how do you keep so sharp? Since you were saying football, when do you start doing football coverage? And how now that you're done with hoop season, you still use the same game prep for you know football season as you would for basketball, or do you get a chance to kind of switch it down to switch the throttle down just a tad, or is it still? High intensity. You still have like to do the same prep that you do for basketball that you would for
1: football. You know, if I, I don't have my schedule yet, if I did, I probably would have started it the day I got home. I'm that maniacal with prep, so uh, not knowing what I'm doing is actually a good thing for me. I've been out uh, raking leaves and taking care of the yard, all the stuff that I uh, wasn't getting done while I wasn't here. So last night I got bored, and right here at my desk. Um, I have the uh, NCAA football changes. I've got the NFL rule changes all highlighted. So I went through all of my rules. Um, I was watching the video rule book that the NFL puts out. You know, I I was preparing myself without knowing what I'm doing next. So as soon as, you know, I might be doing studio for the baseball playoffs for the World Series. I have no idea. I'm, I'm just waiting. So for now, I'm home. Um, I just took a a test for COVID-19 to make sure that, you know, my trip from Florida, I'm back and clean before I uh, officially uh, assimilate with the family. And assuming that test is negative, you know, we'll go about, um, you know, doing our usual stuff. And then I'll I'll, I'll wait for the call. I don't know how long I'll be out. Will it be a week and then some baseball studio? Or will it be a couple of weeks and then getting right into the uh, football play-by-play? But as soon as I find out a matchup, uh, I usually dive in into the deep end and uh, get right into it.
0: What's it like working with the baseballers with the john Abu Chambi, a Dan Schulman a Chris Moulton, or when you worked with John Miller and Dave Sue Campbell and most recently past Joe Morgan when it was the World Series and the MLB playoffs What was it like working? What's it like working with the baseballers compared to when you're doing baskets and
1: doing football? It's different. You know, it's a different um, preparation for the baseball guys. They're not morning guys. You know, they are, let's get to the ballpark four hours early and that's where all the work gets done. So, you know, in basketball, we do a lot of morning production meetings or we go to shoot around and then you have lunch and then you got the rest of the day to prep. Baseball is completely different. It's a seven o'clock game. You know, you're going over to the park at three. So your mornings are to yourself, your lunch is to yourself. And then you're behind the batting cage and you're getting stories or you're in the booth and you're talking to other broadcasters. So to me, it's it's a it's an unfamiliar prep. I love baseball, but it's not a sport that I do often. So when I when I am out there, um, great guys. I mean, Book is about as nice a guy as it gets. Uh, Dan Shulman, same thing. Like I revere those guys. They are great baseball callers. I only get to do like a game a year and can't even do a quarter of the job. Those guys do. Uh, but I love doing it, and I'll fill in any they want for baseball. Um, you know, I get to see them mostly at the All-Star game where I, uh, you know, host on site. And then when it's World Series time or October, I'm usually in Bristol, and they're on the road somewhere. So, really, it's just talking down the line. It's kind of faceless. We'll chat for five minutes, maybe less, before a, a pregame show. So we can go over, you know, what we're going to do, record a few features, whatever. So my relationships with them aren't as uh, as as good as my basketball and football relationships. And I'm kind of missing out this year because everything's being done out of Bristol. All the ESPN radio broadcasts, nobody's on site. So, you know, Kevin Winter, who is hosting and whoever yeah. else is hosting, they get to be around those guys. Because they're, you know, across the glass in the studio for the entire month of October. So I'm I'm kind of missing out on that.
0: I've noticed the sound quality, even though they're not actually at a ballpark. They're picking up all the crowd noise. And yet they still sound like they're actually at the park without being at the park. And I still haven't figured out, you know, how the heck they were able to get that mix and so on and so forth. Because here I could be doing, you know high school games here from my house. Could Could be. And I'm not sure yet, but I could be. I'm just trying to figure out how the heck, you know, with what my basic setup is like what you and I are doing here, except for the fact that I won't be doing the game over Zoom, but I actually technically I will be, except for the fact that, you know, I'll be doing the call on my spotter with me on Zoom, but it's going to feel weird since I'm not doing anything on site yet until they give us the go-ahead. Right, you come well, back on site, and I um, want like the like when you said earlier, doing games without being on site per se that's kind of weird,
1: it's very weird, and it's very difficult. The audio part um I will go inside radio and behind the magic, please go <laughs> we done we've done a, I've done a number of remote games um year over year now. Sure. The Maui Invitational. We used oh, I to, love the Maui. We used to send people to Hawaii. Uh, the first year I got the assignment was the first year we did it from Bristol. Um, some some bowl games, two or three bowl games a year, we call from Bristol. Here's how they do it. Um, all those events I just described to you are ESPN events.
0: Wait, 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 time out. So they don't. So you mean to tell me that a lot of those broadcasts are not actually on site at the. Maloo Jane or the like the San Diego so, County Credit Union Holiday Bowl or a few of the other bowls that you've
1: been to? There's only a few. The The Hawaii Bowl was one for obvious I, reasons. Mm. Um, there were two other bowls I did. Uh, there was one in Annapolis, the Military Bowl. The Military
0: Bowl. Yep.
1: Yeah. That I did from Bristol two years ago. Right. Uh, I forget. There might have been one other. Most of them are on site, but there are two or three that are not. Okay. And you would not know the difference. Exactly. Because um, all those games are ESPN games. So we have access to, I'm told, 16 different channels of audio on the flight back on the satellite. And so ESPN Television is aware this is a radio Bristol game. So they feed us nat- nothing but NAT sound, whistles, ref mics, crowd everything so when you put on your headphone it is just like you're there the only difference is it's two-dimensional on a tv screen and every once in a while we get some bonus screens where maybe there's a camera shot at the bench or an all 22 where you can see everything happening on the field from like an
0: nfl game pass
1: yeah like from a high camera position so in some ways um it's easier to call you're not in a bad booth in the corner end zone a million miles away so there are some pros there are some cons um obviously i'd much rather be at the game anytime in any bad position in any weather than calling a game from a studio but that's essentially how you're listening to these baseball games and they sound good yeah there's nat sound coming from site off the satellite and then we we mix that into our play-by-play and uh dan shulman and john shamby have you know 50 inch television screens and uh some of them i think there's a not an all 22 but let's call it an all nine high home or 11 so they can see um base right. runners and that's you know important when you can't call baseball if you don't have that yeah. i tried it the first weekend and without having that um that high home look you have no idea what the base runners are doing
0: okay i know i know we said a half hour but
1: <laughs> i got it i <laughs> fast, Luther
0: here, okay, I gotta know this because I always ask folks like how big storylines are, how big you know numbers and stats are since you said you wanted to be a mechanical engineer, how much math are you still using, even though you didn't get the mechanical engineering job that you wanted, and also when you're doing a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game. How deep in a wormhole of numbers can you actually get yourself, and can you actually get yourself too deep to the point of where you overthink it as a broadcaster?
1: Yes, yes is the answer. There are so many numbers available to us, not only in game but pregame. We have um, we have something called the Sports and Information Group at ESPN, and they are churning out all kinds of stats. Uh, which are usually uh, for the game prior, but can also lead into the game following. And there are many times at a timeout where, you know, PJ Carlosimo will ask me, do you think this is too much numbers? Because (laughs) the one thing you have to realize is most of our audience is in a car driving and they really just need time and score. That's the most important thing. And we as play-by-play broadcasters and analysts can use numbers to back up what's happening, but you have to be careful not to get, as you said, you know, too far down the rabbit hole on that. So there's a fine line uh, between um, giving numbers, you know, shooting percentages, et cetera, but you don't want to go. Those are the
0: big ones that I need to know. Like what's the shooting percentage, you know, how, you know, how good is this person, shooting from you know three point country like yep. what are they doing from the pop? i don't need all this extra like plus minus when he's on the floor when he's
1: off yeah. the floor yeah. because yeah, it, it,
0: it feels like you're just adding something just to add something i mean right. i a lot of people i know they use the next gen nerd stats and so on and so forth but i'm like as a blind person who wants to be the first blind play by play voice how am I supposed to basically keep it simple so folks can actually understand what the heck I'm talking about? Exactly. And at the high school level, you don't really get a lot of that. So you're pretty much on your own.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of a dinosaur at 52. So I don't, um, I'm not big on the next generation stats. There are things that do make good points. For example, um, when, Uh, Anthony Davis was at the power forward position versus Anthony Davis at the center, all five, you could make the point that their offense was more efficient. And I think making that point is good enough instead of saying they are plus 26 per 100 possessions better. Like, I don't think we need to bog it down with the numbers as if just to say, hey, the analytics show, the Lakers offense is better when he's playing the five, and when he's at the power forward. To me, that makes the point. You don't have to get into the numbers. So I will usually leave the numbers to someone else. And then if it is a little too much, we'll talk in break and say, I think we're confusing people with all these numbers. Let's um, you know soften it a little bit and see if we can just make our point without getting too into the weeds with the numbers. So I try not to look, there's some sales, uh, parts of it too, where sure. we're talking exit velocity, on home runs or distance, yeah. and maybe that's tied in uh, to a, you know, a commercial read. So that's fine too. That's a little bit different, but yeah, the I try velocity, large, like, velocity, time and score, time and score, time and score for radio. That's the most important thing.
0: But, okay. This is definitely going to be the last question. I know I went over time, but you know, I thank you for the time because when you get into stuff like this, you just want to break stuff down to its basic components.
1: And I, you have a appreciate, black... I appreciate your uh, your questions.
0: Now, okay, when we had the opening series with Denver-Utah, you want to talk about two teams that basically almost played almost identical basketball. And you had, a, you know, you had the, the Matthew Mitchell, who was a transfer out of Vanderbilt at one point in time. My math is correct. He... You want to talk about a young man having a series along with the other kids that were there with Denver. And that series went the distance. And Utah had a chance to wrap it up at least, what, three times? And couldn't close it out because because Denver just would not go away. And those are the kind of series that you actually look for, actually, when you have a Denver-Utah. Did you... Did you call that series?
1: I did. I had game seven for sure. I might have had two games in that seven-game series. I'd Didn't have
0: you to... have game five, too?
1: Probably did. You probably know better than I do. I, I, I think. Now better now better I, I, I three could, three could be wrong.
0: <laughs> I could be totally wrong, but I think you had five and seven because I remember at one point when Denver won game four and it was 3-1 and Utah still had the advantage of closing it out in five. And they didn't do it then. But it seemed like every game was at least, what, five points or less? Almost every game for the final four of that series. It seemed I, like nobody could blow anybody out.
1: I, I, what I remember most about that series, besides Denver coming back down 3-1 and um, Jamal Murray having his, I think it was 50-42-50. Yeah. 4-5-6. and six, And Donovan Mitchell you know, did uh, his 50-point magic as well in that series. Yep. But something that's, that sticks with me is something that Doris Burke said. I can't remember when she said it. But <laughs> if Mike Conley shot at the end of game seven, remember that was 80-78, to 78, I think? was Yeah, it was, it
0: was like he missed, the, if I'm not mistaken, either he made the first one, missed the second, or missed the first, and he had to make the second, which he did, or he may have missed the second. They tapped the rebound, and they had to
1: throw up about an 80-footer. He, he got, I remember, Tory Craig went for a layup that he shouldn't have. They could have just ran out the clock. Sure. And he missed the layup. And yeah. it was um, Rudy Gobert, 90 feet away from the basket, threw it way ahead to Conley, and he had a good look at a three. Yep. And the ball went around the rim, halfway down. And kicked out. the air. And Ugh. I remember Doris Burke telling me weeks later, on the air, because all we kept talking about was you know how good jamal murray was so now we're in the conference finals we're at the end of the conference finals that's when she made the point this was lakers denver yeah talked about what a great postseason run this has been for jamal murray and denver and something they could build on for next year but her point was Mm -hmm. if mike conley makes that basket that is the last time we have thought about the denver nuggets and you know jamal murray doesn't have this big run Jamal Murray doesn't take this step up as a leader, and the Denver Nuggets, I don't want to say are an afterthought, but certainly you're not thinking of them on the same level because they got knocked out in round one of the playoffs by the Utah Jazz. So that's the funny thing about, you know, best of seven series in in four series layers is, yep. you know, we could be talking about Donovan Mitchell having one of the great runs, but we didn't because his team lost. And so that's what I remember most about that series was that one basket in and out changed the whole narrative on the postseason for Denver.
0: And then they do it again against a very, and then they do it again against a stat Clippers team, which basically forced Doc Rivers to resign. And I don't know, you know, where the Clippers go from here. I don't know if they are in what we would refer to at the college level as rebuilding, if you will. But where do you think this league is as a whole? Where do you see like some of the old school teams like a Spurs or maybe Golden State coming back? And do you think the Rockets have an opportunity to get – to the finals, if they can ever figure out how to get out of the first or second round somehow or even get to the conference finals and actually find a way to win it? What do you think some of these teams that, you know, were flashed in the pan won't be able to figure it out? Or do you think the league is better as a whole when you start seeing all these young players from all over the world step up and actually, you know, make a good account and showing of themselves.
1: Yeah, there's look there's a lot to unpack in that question and much of it obviously will be decided on personnel, what happens, what changes yeah. are happening here, how is the yeah. season going to look for next year, but
0: overall And this, when will it start?
1: Yeah, when will it start? I mean, <laughs> Golden State's going to be back in the in the equation. Are they the powerhouse they were? No, because no. they don't have Kevin Durant. Um, you know, they're a little bit older, but, you know, a healthy Curry, a healthy clay and, and Draymond Green's going to be uh, someone something to be reckoned with in the West. Yeah. Uh, the Lakers, you know, assuming Anthony Davis, you know, signs the contract, which I can't see why he wouldn't <laughs> sure. uh, just with me and LeBron and whoever else they put out there. They're going to be good. The Clippers are interesting to me mm. because they still have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I don't know what um, Montrezl Harrell is going to do. So that affects their bench, um, and then we'll see who their coach is. But that was going
0: to be the biggest thing for me. Do you think, yeah. depending on who their coach is, will determine whether or not George and
1: Kawhi stay in L.A.? It's a hard question because if you asked me about Frank Vogel being the third choice last year, I might have given a different answer than what we've seen now. Sure. In, in retrospect, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. So if it's a Ty Lue or a Sam Cassell in L.A., they don't have necessarily the name power. Ty does. He won a championship in Cleveland, Mm -hmm. and Sam obviously is a player. But you just don't know what the value is because Frank Vogel's an outstanding coach, and Mm -hmm. nobody even gave him a chance to get out of November before Jason Kidd, that was the narrative, was going to take his spot on the bench if things got off to a bad start. So it's hard to tell, but I think Lakers, Clippers – Warriors uh, and Denver and then Utah's right off the right off there Houston's yeah. the interesting part because mm-hmm. you know Mike D'Antoni's system uh it was great for the personnel they have and whoever takes over Houston what are they going to run you know you still have Westbrook and Harden but you've got a small team that likes to shoot three pointers for the rest so but when you get to the
0: postseason of- you really can't I mean you can't get away with that in the postseason because at and some and he, point they're going to find it. There's going to be a team that they're going to run into that's going to shut down that three point arc, and they don't have anybody in the post. They're going to just be able to pound that thing inside and, that, and get the Rockets in foul trouble.
1: Yep, that was always the question with Houston: is could this work? And the amazing thing was, they were a Chris Paul hamstring injury away from being in the finals two years ago yep. against Cleveland. And I don't—they might have been favored in that series. That was not, you know, a great Cleveland team. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh, but you know they still had LeBron, obviously, and they still had some good pieces. But that would have been fascinating if that was the closest that Mike D'Antoni was ever going to get to an NBA championship. But we'll never know.
0: Where are the Spurs in this equation? Because it seems like they've fallen off. But yeah, seems, they like it seems like seems like they have some talent trying to make it with that
1: team. They do. They have a couple really good young guards. Um, they've got some pieces. I know, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge is, you know, on the backside of his career.
0: Yep. He's getting up there.
1: You know, DeMar DeRozan, I don't know how much longer he stays in San Antonio. I don't know how much longer Greg Popovich coaches the Spurs. You know, they're a team that didn't want to bottom out. And uh, you know, I think that's great, you know, that they didn't just completely tear it down and, and start over again, but I don't know outside of, you know, getting some more personnel in there that they can compete in that stack conference. You know, right now, look, that was the first time they hadn't made the playoffs since what? God knows
0: how long. I mean, I mean, you when you when you have a Duncan, a Parker, you know, you know, when you had those three Popovich, you knew he could pencil those three in and then whoever else he put around them it was going to work because you you had a steady point guard, you had a steady small forward and you had a guy that could play either a power forward or at center. You knew what you had with the fundam- with that team that played the fundamentals of basketball.
1: You and knew what you a, had there. Excellently coached, they bought into the system. There was a culture there that's you know not that far off from what they're doing in Miami. And it was a machine. And Eric Spolskoff, yeah. in my
0: opinion, one of the most underrated coaching minds. I don't know what your thought is on that, but for me, if I'm Pat Riley, I'm not letting that guy go. I don't think he he's, will. <laughs> he he's got he's got something there with a Jimmy Butler, a and other guy, and a Bam out of Bio, a Tyler Hero. Those guys and whoever else they decide to, you know, bring on board. That team has a chance to stay around for a minute.
1: Oh, yeah. And to your first point, Eric Spolstra is one of the finest coaches in the league. What they did, um, not necessarily to get to the finals, but once they were compromised by injury. And how like they got better. They, they they changed. They morphed. Uh, they figured out how can we adjust, and all the adjustments that they made worked. Yep, they got better. Uh, they did. And look, Jimmy Butler shouldered <laughs> victories. There's, there's no question about that. They had you know all world performances in their two wins, uh, but just how they you know switched up their defense. Well, they went heavy zone one game, mm-hmm. less zone the next. Yep, uh, how they utilized you know Butler off the ball one game. Versus the next, like they, you know, they're, he's very good. And his coaching staff is very good. And believe me, Pat Riley is still involved, from, from me that. End, but is still involved of, you know, the discussion to say, Hey, why don't we try stuff this way? And that team, you know, look, they, they were a young team that had no business getting as far I uh, as- no, but they did it. And they took out the big, bad Milwaukee bucks. And uh, they, they blitzed out Indiana early. The Pacers were a good team. And then Boston, that was, that was a tough series.
0: I was surprised on that series on how Eon, when Boston, you know, fell behind in that series, it just seemed like Boston could never recover.
1: Yeah. But yeah that was all Miami. I mean, that was, that series was built for Miami. Oh yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't a big presence.
0: It was a rear mirror
1: game. It was a mirror game and they won the matchup. And then the Lakers are just so big at so many important at all in all the positions not just important positions, you had guys coming off the bench, you know, that were six, 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 five, that were into passing lanes and, you know, played great defense. So that was a really exactly. tough series. And without those two guys at the first half of game one, it could have easy, easily been a four game sweep. So for them to get it to game six uh, was really a testament to the players and the coaching.
0: Where do you see the Celtics and where do you see the Bucks after being just basically embarrassed in the, postseason bubble, like those teams in the East, and I forgot the Dallas Mavericks, who also made the playoffs this year, yeah. they've got a very special young man in Luka Doncic. But after yeah. that, it's like they need more pieces around him to make it work.
1: Yeah, I liked, I liked what Dallas was doing, and uh, hopefully Porzingis will be fine coming off his surgery. Yeah, I hope so too. And, you know, I like Seth Curry. He's kind of found the spot <laughs> himself. Tim Hardaway, you know, that, that turned out to be a really good trade. So I think Dallas, yeah. again, stacked conference. I don't know. Ray Carlisle. Yeah, I don't. a Great coach. I don't know, you know, what their prognosis is in sure. that conference. In the East, you know, Milwaukee's got good parts. I don't know why they have hit stumbling blocks. I think it's, you know, Giannis just needs to continue expanding his game, which is unbelievable to say for a guy who's now a two-time most valuable player. Exactly,
0: And that, that's but, stunning to me under itself,
1: but in a, in a seven game series, you know, they have to, he's got to figure out a way when teams are just going to collapse on him. You know, that there's, there's going to be other guys that are going to have to shoulder the load more sure. than just Middleton. Um, you know, that's that's been, and Eric Gordon. And uh, yeah, well, um uh, yeah Eric Bledsoe. Yeah Bledsoe. Yep. And look, they've got some really good pieces. They got George Hill as well. Yeah. The biggest thing for Milwaukee right now is just figuring out what their long term standing is with Giannis. I sure. I he's always said he wants to stay. I hope he does. Um
0: He's got a chance. He's got a chance to do something in Milwaukee that hadn't
1: been done in God knows how long. He, he does. And look, you could say the bubble experience was tough on Milwaukee. Um, they were the team that had the Wildcat strike and are, were very involved in what was happening in Wisconsin. Yeah, so it, you could say it's a convenient excuse, but I do think it was something that was also taking away. Um, from their 100% focus. So sure. you do it, you, you play these games in a more traditional setting uh, with the same team. Maybe I think more-
0: Milwaukee gets to the finals,
1: maybe they may to
0: the Eastern conference final, maybe not the NBA finals, but at least back to the Eastern conference, at least
1: correct. And I think, look, Boston has some, decisions to make. I think Gordon Hayward has a decision to make first. Yep, he does. And, you know, they'll they I mean they're they're sitting pretty anyway with uh with young players.
0: But why would he want but why would he want to leave the guy that coached him, Brad Stevens when he was at Butler?
1: I don't know, unless he just wants to go home to Indiana. Um I don't know why he would leave. It doesn't seem like it's on my radar that he would leave, but I have Would he
0: be a fit in Indiana if he decided to go home?
1: I think I mean he'd be a fit anywhere, really. I mean, he's uh he's a good player. He's for Boston. Uh, he was a stabilizing force, especially when Miami went to that zone yeah. to Get them. And look, we really haven't seen the healthy, healthy Gordon Hayward. No, we've not. At
0: least what, three years? Four it's years maybe. Long,
1: it's been a long time. So I don't know. I mean, those are big numbers to opt out of contracts, especially in the yeah. unknown of this COVID era So I would be surprised if he left Boston But it's an unanswered question as we record this
0: And what do you think what, And what do you think they'll do With a Kimball Walker Who they made a big trade for In the, this past, uh, what was it, last season Or yes this season Something like that I mean, they, yes. they found a stabilizing point guard Who can not only be a point guard That can, you know, run the offense But can make, you know, create his own shot
1: and score I think they love having Kemba Walker there and I think um, they've been off now for what? Uh, three weeks. Something and, like that. About a like, month. Who knows when the season's going to start? Let's say January just as a, a point of reference. So that's what? Two months, three months from now? Something like that. I think his knee was never right. Um, mm. You know, It was bad when we hit the hiatus and I think he may have re-injured it early in the seeding games. Mm. We never saw the, the the Kemba Walker that we had seen earlier in the season, so I'm going to give him benefit of the doubt. I know he'll be another year older, but I think um,
0: I think that whole Celtic to- team just health was their biggest issue Yeah, for most
1: of them, anyway. It was. I mean, Gordon Hayward was lost. Um, Kemba definitely was, wasn't
0: 100%. They really didn't have a true center either
1: yeah it was uh, yeah it's right Tice had it, ironically his best games at the end of that series too but mm-hmm. yeah, they have they have some personnel decisions that they'll take a look at but you know any Brad Stevens coach team I'm always uh always is going to catch my eye cuz he does a great job
0: and where do you see it to- where do you see
1: Toronto at
0: in the Eastern Conference pecking order because they you know there there were a few teams that kind of Slid back or took a step back, and everybody else either passed them, or other teams that were behind them, or you know, creeping up on them just a little bit.
1: Yeah, I love Toronto. I mean, that is one of my favorite teams. I was disappointed when Kawhi didn't re sign there. I mm. never, I never thought they could be as good as they were without Leonard. Sure, and they missed him late game, obviously, with yeah. the Siakam. Yeah, he was you the mean, great bailout. But I, yeah. I love that team. I love Kyle Lowry. Uh, he's got to be about 33, 34 years of age now. So I don't know how much longer, you know, he can do it at this back end of his prime. But- do you think
0: he gets too, speaking of Lowry, do you think he gets too much blame when the Raptors aren't doing well or when he's just not making shots? I, you see, it just seems to me that with him being the point guard, with the guys that he has around him, when his shot's not falling – it feels like how he goes and how Siakam goes and a few other guys go, that's how Toronto goes. But I feel like at times it's a little unfair that Lowry gets most of the blame, even though he may deserve some of it, but
1: not all of it. I agree. I mean, he's, I guess he's the the easy focal point because everybody knows him, Uh, but now I, 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 if, if there is a lot of blame and it's going toward him, then I, I, I don't agree with it. I think, um, They've done a good job of bringing guys up through their system. Siakam's one of them. Van Vliet is another. Oh,
0: I love Mason Van Vliet. I remember yeah. in the Wichita State, my God, wasn't he special.
1: Yes, and he is eligible for uh, a contract anywhere. So Was- I hope they don't lose him because I think he's an integral part of what they do. Sure. But, yeah, pending Van Vliet, and I forget who else is a free agent on that team. Uh, I love Nick Nurse and how he coaches. So I think um, with the Milwaukee's and the Boston's, I put Toronto up there as well as uh, a major player in the East, again, moving forward.
0: What does Nick Nurse bring to that team that a lot of other coaches have not been able to bring? Just out of curiosity from your point of view, from where you sit.
1: I just think um, his ability to think out of the box, you know, we talked about Spolstra and Mm -hmm. the creativity. I think he's in that class. He he sees the game differently. He was
0: one of the only few teams that did zone a lot against yeah, hey. Golden State and basically took them out of what they wanted to do. I mean, a zone is where you normally can make
1: a three. I was so, sitting next to Hubie uh, Brown and, and we're in a commercial, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's talking about the box and one. <laughs> like, we haven't thought about that since, you know, high school days. Since at least the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Maybe
0: they're maybe they're late nineties. I mean, you still see a boxing one, but you don't see it as much. Maybe you see more like a what, a one three one, a one two two. I mean, what was the last time? What was the last time saw a triangle and two or a boxing one against, you know, a start guy where they want to take him away, and make somebody else beat you
1: in an NBA game where exactly where guys not college. Talking about defense, you have the best defenders on the planet, and you're going to ask them to play in these crazy zone schemes. But you know what? It worked, and exactly. now other teams doing it. And I give all that credit to Nick Nurse because uh, I don't want to say he's a visionary, but he's a visionary. And I also love his story, you know, to uh, you know come up through British basketball or overseas in Europe, and and then be rolling through uh, Des Moines, Iowa. And calling somebody uh, who had some uh, pull in the state and say, we should have a G League team here. And I want to be its head coach. And it actually happened. And then work his way to the NBA and then then take over the Toronto Raptors after assisting Dwayne Casey for five, six years. Uh, He's a self-made man. Mm -hmm. And he's an outstanding basketball mind. And, uh, you know, any, any team that he's coaching, I'm interested in.
0: One last thing, because I know we've said 30 minutes and we've gone almost, <laughs> we we blasted almost an hour. We did. <laughs> but again, I appreciate the time. Where, because we've seen in summer league coaches come from out of nowhere. And we've been hearing the last, what, three or four years about Becky Hammond, who was who's still on the Spurs staff. Do you think she's going to be the first female NBA head coach, or do you think there's somebody else out there that we're not thinking of in the ladies' ranks that could come from either college or high school that could be the first female coach of an NBA men's team?
1: I don't know if she'll be the first, but I think, uh, I mean, she's perfectly positioned to be the first. I thought somebody I worked with, who was on the Celtic staff this year, Carol Lawson, who's now at Duke. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's going
0: she's gonna to do special things over at Duke. I can
1: just see it. You know, I, I'd become very friendly with her the last 10 years or so. We were, you know, sometimes on the same flights. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was doing a, a college game somewhere, and I was doing a game, and we'd connect in the same place. So sure. we, we became friendly. And then I worked with her doing radio games for NBA, and so now I'm. She did
0: very well as an analyst. I, I you know, I, I do, I do had to give you some credit working with her. I mean, because I could tell she had a future. I don't know as an analyst on the radio side, but I'm like, wow, that's not bad.
1: Well, somebody
0: the- that's actually played and then coached.
1: Here's the perfect example: is when we go into head coaches' offices to do interviews. Mm-hmm. You know, I will ask my usual questions. Maybe we'll put them on tape for the pregame show, and then she would ask a question or two, and the coach would always kind of pause and say, "Kara, that's the best question I've been asked this week." That <laughs> she was that insightful, and she she thinks the game like a like a coach. Mm-hmm. So. To me, it was never. It was never a, a could it happen. It was when it will happen. Well, so I'll put it I'm this surprised way. Surprised when she left Boston because I thought she was on track. But you know what? She's always five years ahead of me in in making moves. So if she felt this was in the right direction for her to get to ultimately where she wanted to go, and I don't know if that's NBA head coach. Um, you know, I don't know what her career plan is. I just know that every decision she has made has worked out for her so this was i I give her total benefit of the doubt that she wants to win acc titles and national championships and then go from there she's still a very young woman but uh, she can do anything she puts her mind to
0: i'll put it this way when you were coached by a legendary head coach that kind of gives you a pretty good idea of You know, what she was able to do at Tennessee under the legendary Pat Head Summit, and what she used to carry herself into this coaching profession now as head coach at Duke. What do you think? What do you think Carol Austin is going to bring to that Duke program that hasn't been there probably since when they won the last National Championship in women's basketball? in the early 2000s or something like that. It's been a little bit for Duke since they've actually been on a national championship stage. They've been in the NCAA women's tournament. But they've always gotten bounced out on the sweet 16 or the elite eight.
1: Yeah. Well, she's going to, the first thing is is everything you mentioned about the late Pat summit. She brings mm-hmm. all those lessons. She brings instant credibility. Um, you know, she's going to bring the best recruits, you know, look, many of them have come uh, through my backyard here at UConn or, you know, whether it was Tennessee back in the day or Stanford or Baylor now and all Mm -hmm. these great institutions uh, where women's college basketball has been at the top. (laughs) Going to start bringing those players to Duke, much like uh, Mike Krzyzewski has for many years. And And Duke's got a
0: pretty doggone good men's class this year too.
1: Yeah, they do. Every year, it's always, uh, you you just keep adding really good players. And so she's going to do that. But even more than recruiting and even more than winning, which is going to happen, is you know, she is going to, when when she comes into your living room and your daughter is going to go play for her, you know, you are going to have growth in those four years that you're there. You're going to grow into an unbelievable professional woman, whether it's in the profession of basketball or in any other profession at that fine institution. And that's, That's what she's going to bring. It's an honesty. It's a winning culture. Um, I I can't, I can't even describe, you know, how awesome it is to, you know, just discuss things with her because she sees Mm -hmm. things two and three moves ahead of what I see. And, and that's what you want for someone who, you know, is, uh, is in charge of molding 18 to 22 year old minds. Sure. she's a great person.
0: Kind of like a Bill Self in Kansas, what he does every year with his men's basketball team. He, you know, he may not get, you know, the five stars, but he'll take a four or a three star, and get the best out of them, probably even more than what
1: they could even get out of themselves. Yep, there's a lot of great coaches across the country, and and that's always the trick, you know, is to uh, take what you are given, make them better as people and as players. And, um, you know, I haven't been around the college game as much as I've been around the pro game. But I know every college sadly, coach that I've worked with, you know, they've always the most important thing to them is how their players have turned out as human beings uh, beyond basketball. And that's what makes them most proud. Same
0: thing with Nick Saban in Alabama. A dab Sweeney at a Clemson. Nick Sabin will be on the sideline this weekend for the sure. Georgia game. But, you know, in in all the sports that you and I have listened to or, you know, at the highest level that you are now, what I'm striving to reach at, you can just tell the coaches and players that, you know, have been taught well and have learned well because they use those lessons
1: in their lives after the sports that they play. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, that's to me. You don't stay at that level. For a long period of time, unless you have taken lessons from many people. You know, there's yep. only that one or two or three head coaches or assistant coaches on your way up the ladder. And same thing mm-hmm. in broadcasting, too. I mean, if you don't learn those lessons from those who have done it before you, you're kidding yourself. You really failed. Almost, almost you you've failed. It's almost impossible to, you know, to stay at that level for any appreciable amount of time unless you have absorbed and and not only that but you give back to the people who are coming behind you and that's you know it's it's a big cycle and if you if you complete that cycle you've had a pretty good career it's
0: like the lion king in the circle of life
1: that's exactly Every, every every everything
0: has to die for something new to come alive
1: that's right sadly sadly true the broadcasting career will end someday But hopefully I have spawned many others in just some small way before my microphone is extinguished.
0: (laughs) So you're not sure what's next, but whatever you do next, I will be listening and hopefully learning because that's why I I do what I'm trying to at least do here. And plus what I'm trying to do
1: with what I am wanted to reach. Good luck with your career. I uh, appreciate uh, getting to spend a little time with you. Keep it up. I encourage you, uh, you know, just do as many games as you can. I know you're overcoming unbelievable obstacles, but uh, you're already doing a fine job from what I can see, and your inquisitive brain and mind is a huge part of that. So just keep it up.
0: Cassie, thanks for the time. I mean, I know we said 30, but, you know, when you get a good conversation going in different sports and different things. And, you know, it's going to go over an hour, especially when you have been quit when you want to know things. And I'm like, I've always wondered how it was like working with the Brent Musburger, a Jim Durham, a Dr. Jack and so on and so forth. Cause I've listened, I've listened to those broadcasts and I'm like, what is it with a game day host? And then when you took over moving from the, you know, hosting chair to, The number one chair. Especially taking over for a legend. That probably was the hardest thing for you anyway.
1: It was. You know what made it easier? And I think this is good for every broadcasting hopeful out there is, and I know you would agree, it's preparation and opportunity. We always, Branch Ricky say that, right? Way back in the day that luck is the crossroads of preparation and opportunity. So you never know when the opportunity is going to come. You can't control that. But you can sure as heck control the preparation. And my whole broadcast career, I may not have known it at the time, but every time I got a chance to call a game or envision myself. It was your classroom. Being in the position that those guys were in, I knew that when my my number was called, it was never a hesitation. It was never nervousness. It was I can do this. Please give me a chance. And when they gave me the chance, I didn't have to worry about it cuz I knew I could do it. And that's all because of I was prepared for years and years and years and years. And so you just I always tell everybody, reps, reps, reps. Keep calling games. It'll get comfortable. You'll move up levels. And then when your time is called and that opportunity hits, you will be prepared and it's more than luck.
0: Do you think some people sadly think they can just do this just put a headset on and then when they find out whoa this is a lot more tougher than i thought do you do you think sometimes some people have too much bravado and think they can do this and just put a headset on with 5 minutes before game time without doing any notes or anything like that but how big is it to keep yourself mentally sharp even though we talk about preparation a lot physically but how big is preparation for a game broadcast, especially when, you, when you're when you doing it for the first time? Mentally, is it to keep yourself sharp and ready to go?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's ultra important to be sharp, but I, I think to get back to what you were saying about just throwing on a headset and doing it, I, and look, there, there's probably naturals out there that could. Sure. Um But I think most of the population, when they throw on a headset and then they realize they're the ones who have to talk, it's different. It's different. And it's not that you can't do it. Anybody can do it. It's a book. It's a look, there's there's broadcast journalism schools out there that are very expensive for four year degrees. And there's no guarantee that any of that's going to translate into a broadcast job. I was a, a chemical engineering student who no longer wanted to study chemical engineering. And I was able to put together a career in broadcast because it's an art form. It is, uh, again, I threw on a headset for the first time and I just did it. It probably stunk, but it didn't matter because I said, here's here's how I can be better. Here are the 27 ways I can be better. And the next time, maybe I only had 26 more ways, so on and so on. Next thing you know, you're five years into it. And you're still not great, but you, you, you can do it as a professional. But
0: you're still learning though,
1: And you're learning and you're getting paid and your, your time's going to come eventually. And that's the thing. It's like flying an airplane. It's, you know, you need a thousand, 10,000 hours and that's what this job is about. So somebody who just wants to throw on the headset without putting in the 10,000 hours, you're really not going to get anywhere. So that's, To me, that's the mentally sharp part is if you do it for 10,000 hours, you're going to be sharp just because you know exactly what you need to do at any point in the game. Are there times you're going to mess up? We all mess up. But uh, for the most part, you're going to have a a solid broadcast because you're sharp based on the fact that you have been doing this hour upon hour upon hour.
0: You must have been reading some Malcolm Gladwell on the 10,000 hour (laughs) rule.
1: I probably stole it from somewhere like like most other things.
0: So cuz they there's a book that always talks about Malcolm Gladwell called The 10,000 Hour Rule or something like that. Yes. Where I've, that's I've one of the biggest things that he talks over. about. The
1: 10,000 Hour Rule. That's right. And I I'm I'm pretty sure I'm well well beyond that, but uh that is that's the goal is just keep doing it and you will get better without even trying. Actually, you are trying. You just don't realize it because you're putting in the reps doing something you love.
0: Well, whenever the NBA starts up again, are you, are you thinking on going back to doing sports centers to keep yourself sharp again to go back to the old school? If you had to,
1: I would would love to. I've offered. um, I don't think there's a a spot for me anymore. I think I'm more apt to host a game. And we have a lot of football coming up. I know starting in November, we have doubleheader Saturdays, doubleheader Sundays. So I'm pretty sure there'll be something for me. And then college basketball is going to creep in around Thanksgiving. So,
0: yeah, I think it's like what? A day, the day before Thanksgiving, or think. Yeah, I want
1: to say the twenty fifth of November. Yeah,
0: twenty because I think I think they've already allowed practice. I think they start. I think they started practice yesterday.
1: They did. They did. I think today was the official day, the fourteenth. Well, that was yesterday. You're yeah, correct. that was yesterday. It was yeah, yesterday. This day two. It's my uh, my post bubble beard. I don't know how many days I've not shaven, so I'm still lost for days. But I think uh, I think I will stay sharp in one form or another.
0: This is a blast, and hopefully, when we get a chance to talk again, hopefully. We'll have more games, and hopefully there will be something or a cure of some kind or at least get this pandemic under control where people can actually stop going stir-crazy. I mean, I've been going stir-crazy. I know you were going stir-crazy, and you probably still are, even though you can't really go outside a lot. But we all are just hoping and praying for a miracle that we can get some type of a cure or some type of vaccine so we can get some kind of relief from this thing
1: i agree let's get back to normal as soon as it's safe to and i'm sure uh you and i will chat down the road thank you very much uh for checking in on me i appreciate it no thank you